You are now listening to the October 31st broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Story of Kings, Sermon, and Transforming Grace. First, let's begin with Story of Kings. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with Story of Kings. For the past two weeks, we shared various stories involving King Ahab. The scripture came largely from 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29, to chapter 22, verse 40, and in 2 Chronicles chapter 18. We learn that Ahab was an evil king, darker and more sinister than any other kings before him. God showed Ahab that he was the true God by helping him overcome two insurmountable wars, but Ahab's heart became hardened and did not follow God's ways. He ruled Israel with an iron fist and with greed, totally ignoring the ways of God. Today, we will share what Ahab's life was like after those two wars and how his life eventually met its end. After God delivered Ben-Hadad of Aram into his hand, Ahab was busy looking magnanimous to this person that attacked Israel with terrible intentions. Instead of putting an end to this enemy's life, which would have been what God wanted, Ahab actually set him free and made a treaty with him. When he was confronted by a prophet, he got upset with God and returned to his palace in Samaria and sulked. He did not see the wrong he had done and did not repent before God. Soon after, Ahab went to his secondary royal residence in Jezreel. Here an incident occurred that demonstrated his greed and wickedness. Now, think about how one might fancy something a friend or a neighbor owned but we know it is wrong to covet something that belongs to something else. Well, apparently, while in Jezreel, Ahab began to fancy a vineyard that belonged to another person. This vineyard must have been beautiful with lush slopes and succulent grapes hanging from the vine. It stole his heart, and he began to covet it. And it happened to belong to a man named Naboth. Naboth had his family roots in Jezreel, and that vineyard had been in his family for generations. That didn't matter. Ahab went to him and asked him to give it away. Imposing himself on Naboth and demanding that he give up the vineyard to him, Ahab offered in exchange a better vineyard somewhere else. If he did not want to accept a different vineyard, Ahab would gladly pay for the vineyard. It seemed Ahab would say anything to get that vineyard. Naboth's response was a flat no. He cited how God's command forbade him from selling a vineyard that had been in his family for generations. In fact, according to Leviticus chapter 25, verse 23 to 28, and Numbers chapter 36, verses 7 to 9, God ordered the Israelites to not give away the land that had belonged to their family to other people, 
That was simply because the land belonged to God. Naboth refused Ahab's request. Of course, Ahab was then disheartened and upset. Ahab came back to his palace, sullen and vexed. He lay down in his bed, downcast, and refused to eat any food. Seeing Ahab in the state of what appeared to be a broken-heartedness, Jezebel, his wife, asked him why and got the lowdown on his unsuccessful attempt at getting the vineyard. Do you remember learning about Jezebel and how she is regarded as the most evil and wicked woman in the Bible? What she did next tells us how she came to be called that. Hearing what Ahab said, Jezebel fetched up an evil plan to get rid of Naboth so that Ahab can take over his vineyard. At the time in Israel, there was a cultural practice in which people proclaim a fast in order to repent when an evil deed, sin, or some terrible thing had happened. Jezebel decided to use this custom and ordered the elders and the nobles in the city where Naboth lived to proclaim a fast. Then she hired two scoundrels to bear false witness against Naboth. These two worthless men falsely accused Naboth for cursing against God and king. According to the law at the time, cursing against God was a crime punishable by death. Jezebel knew this law well and framed Naboth so that he would be stoned to death. And that is what happened. People stoned Naboth to death under a false accusation by two scoundrels they most likely knew to be bad men. We can see how the leaders of Israel were corrupted and desensitized to sins and how they took part in Jezebel's evil plot of using the sacred law in an evil way. They became co-conspirators in committing a crime to murder Naboth. That actually did not seem to matter to Ahab. When he heard that Naboth was dead, he instantly sprang from his bed and went down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Then the word of God came to Elijah, who delivered it to Ahab. God decided to take action against Ahab and his house for committing such an evil and despicable act. Here is what God said in 1 Kings chapter 21, verses 21 to 24. Behold, I will bring evil upon you and will utterly sweep you away and will cut off from Ahab every male, both bond and free, in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger, and because you have made Israel sin. Of Jezebel also has the Lord spoken, saying, The dogs will eat Jezebel in the district of Jezreel. The one belonging to Ahab, who dies in the city, the dogs will eat, and the one who dies in the field, the birds of heaven will eat. God's word that came through Elijah must have scared Ahab. He actually responded in a remorseful way. He showed a change in his demeanor. The Bible records he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and fasted. And he lay in sackcloth and went about despondently. 
First Kings chapter 21 verse 29 says that this was Ahab's way of humbling himself before God. Seeing the changes in his behavior, God then told Ahab through Elijah that he would bring the disaster he spoke of, not in Ahab's days, but in his son's days, because Ahab humbled himself before God. Since the last war against Aram, there was peace for three years between Aram and Israel. Incidentally, around that time, Israel made an alliance with Judah, and Ahab made plans to go to war against Aram by taking advantage of this alliance. Ahab justified the war as one to take back Ramoth-Gilead that Ben-Hadad had promised to return but failed to do so. Ramoth-Gilead was a very important fortified city that was the center of trade as it geographically connected the north and the south. There had been constant scuffles between Israel and Aram to take control of the city. Ahab had the idea of taking the city by using Judah's strong military power. However, God did not approve of this war. Ahab eventually died in this war. The story surrounding his death is recorded in detail in 1 Kings chapter 22 and 2 Chronicles chapter 18. At some point during the war, an Aramean soldier shot an arrow in the air at random and it happened to strike King Ahab, king of Israel. He died on his chariot close to sunset. Here is what is said in 1 Kings chapter 22 verse 38. They washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood. Now the harlots bathed themselves there, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke. Just as prophet Micaiah had prophesied, Ahab was enticed by false prophets, and he died just as prophet Elijah had prophesied. The dogs licked up Ahab's blood off of his chariot at the place where they once licked up Naboth's blood. Ahab worshipped idols and did evil in the sight of God. Yet God tried to minister to Ahab by saving him from tough situations and by speaking through many prophets. Ahab witnessed that God was the true God and won a couple of wars that he surely would have lost without God's intervention. He witnessed God's mighty power, yet he did not return to God. Even to the end, he lived in greed and by his selfishness. Ahab was a tragic story personified. Moving forward, we will continue to stay with sharing stories of kings in northern Israel and southern Judah. Perhaps we will find a few good kings that walk the path of the Lord in coming episodes. Thank you for listening and have a blessed week.
Next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is The Secret of Contentment, Part 1. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. 
today I want to show you a secret. So those of you who are kids or if you can remember being a kid, like when your friend said, I have a secret to tell you, you listened up. Like you wanted to know what nobody else knew. Well, today I have a secret to tell you, something most people don't know. And the reason I'm using the word secret is because that's the word God uses in what we're about to read. So this is not like me saying or your friends saying, I have a secret to tell you. This is the God of the universe saying to you and to me in the next few minutes, I have a secret to tell you. Something that not everybody else knows. So when God is telling you a secret, You stop whatever you're doing and you listen. So let's do that. Let's stop whatever we're doing, whatever else we may be thinking about in our lives right now, and let's listen to the secret. So let's read this chapter, Philippians chapter 4, verse 1 to verse 13. Let's hear the word of God, and specifically when we get to the end, hear the secret. Here we go. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any And every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. 
I can do all things through him who strengthens me. All right, did you see it? There at the end of this passage, it says, I have learned the secret. So there it is. God says, here's the secret of being content. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to see what the secret is. So what is the secret? What is contentment? Then next week, Lord willing, we're going to learn how to get it. Because that's what Paul is saying here in the Bible. He's saying, I have learned to be content. I know how. I know how. In every, any and every circumstance, I have learned. I can do. So next week, we're going to ask the question, like, how can we learn this? How can we know how to do this? And how can we do this secret, experience it in our lives? Now, even before we dive into part one on the secret of contentment, I want to at least mention one significant side note from verse 10. So this is like bonus content here in addition to the secret of contentment. So we have the main meal coming, but this is gonna be like a really juicy appetizer on the house. So verse 10 says, Paul writes, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So just a reminder here that Paul, who's writing the book of Philippians under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is in prison as he's pinning these words. He's in prison for proclaiming the gospel. So for those of you, friends, family members, any number of people who are watching who are not yet Christians, the gospel is the good news of God's love for the world in Jesus. So the Bible teaches that all of us have sinned against God. We have all turned from God's ways to our own ways. And as a result of our sin, we are separated from God. And we deserve judgment before God. Eternal judgment when we die. But the good news is that God loves us and God has come to us in the person of Jesus who lived a perfect life with no sin and then chose to die on a cross for our sin, to pay the penalty, death, for your sin and my sin so that anyone, anywhere who turns from their sin and themselves, their ways to trust in Jesus to save them from their sin, you can have eternal life with God starting right now. So this is the gospel. And the point in what we're reading, though, is that Paul, who's writing this book, was proclaiming this gospel in the first century. He was thrown into a Roman prison because of it. And the way Roman prisons worked, the prisoners were dependent on outside support for everything they needed. They needed people from outside to bring them food, clothing, anything else they would have. And here in verse 10, Paul says, he rejoiced in the Lord. Why? Because they had revived their concern for him. You jump down to Philippians chapter four, verse 18, and Paul says, I am well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So the Christians in Philippi had sent Paul gifts to support him in prison. 
And in the language Paul uses, so this is the bonus content here, I just want you to see two critical ingredients for Christian generosity. We're gonna hit these really quick, but I wanna, I wanna show you these and then show you why this bonus content is really helpful, particularly in light of all that's going on around us right now. So the first ingredient for Christian generosity is an open heart, an open heart. So twice in Philippians chapter four, verse 10, Paul uses that word concern to say how grateful he is for their concern for him. You've revived your concern for me. You are indeed concerned for me. It's interesting. That same word that's translated concern in Philippians chapter four, back in Philippians chapter one, verse seven, when Paul wrote, it is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. When he uses that word feel, it's actually the same word that's translated concern in Philippians chapter four, verse 10. So basically Paul says to these Philippian Christians, you have been on my heart and now it's encouraging to know that I am on your heart. You've revived your concern for me. So Christian generosity involves hearts that are open to see people who are in need around you or maybe people in need who are far from you, as Paul was far from these Philippian Christians. Christian generosity starts with an open heart, but that's not where it stops. Christian generosity also involves open hands. Christian generosity involves both an open heart and open hands. Paul says, you were indeed concerned about me, but you had no opportunity. So it had been in a while. He even uses the word, uh, sorry, come back to... You know what, I'm gonna do something real quick. I am going to reset this a bit. All right, so come back to, he said, you have revived your concern at length for me. So it had been a while since he had shown this concern, since they had shown this concern for Paul. We don't know why, but they didn't have opportunity in the past, but now, Whatever has changed, they have opportunity. And so that leads to this second critical part of Christian generosity, open hands. Now they are able to help Paul in ways that they were not able to help before. So why is this so important? In the middle of a pandemic, God is calling us to be generous people with open hearts and open hands to the extent that we have opportunity. So that then leads into verse 11, where Paul quickly makes a clarification about what he just said in verse 10. So he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. This is really interesting. Paul wants to be clear, like he's very grateful for their gift, but it's not the gift that makes him content. Like he wants to make sure that's really, really clear. That what leads into this secret that he's learned is not getting more stuff. So we're starting to see, all right, what is this secret of contentment? We have to know what it is before we know how to, how to get it, how to learn it and have it and know it and do it. So I wanna go ahead and give you a definition of contentment. You might write it down. And so I'm gonna let you in on the secret right now. And then I wanna show it to you in God's word. So here it is. Contentment is 
the sweet inward state of perpetual joy, peace, gentleness, and strength in every moment, regardless of our circumstances. Let me say that again. Contentment, according to God, according to the Bible, what I'm about to show you is the sweet inward state of perpetual joy, peace, gentleness, and strength in every moment, regardless of our circumstances. This state of perpetual joy, peace, gentleness, and strength. And I use those words because that's the whole context of Philippians 4, right? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. This is about joy. Paul's talking about perpetual joy. Always joy here. Perpetual, constant, never-ending joy. Then he says, verse 5, the Lord is... uh, says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And we talked about, Mike showed us how reasonableness, there is a gentleness, even in the face of injustice, like Paul is facing. So you have this perpetual joy, gentleness, and peace. We've talked about this in contrast to anxiety over the last couple of weeks in verses six and seven. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God and the Peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This is what Philippians 4 is all about. Joy and gentleness and peace. And we know that Paul hasn't moved on from these things when he starts talking about contentment in verse 11 because Paul is still using the same words in verse 9. He says, the God of peace will be with you. We looked at that last week. And then verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord. Same exact phrase that he used in verse Four. So clearly Paul is still talking about peace and joy. The only thing different now is that he adds something. In verse 13, he adds, I can all do all things through him who strengthens me. So we have strength here. So he summarizes the secret of contentment. So we're going to get to that more next week. One of the most misquoted verses in the Bible. But he's talked about joy in the Lord, peace from the Lord, gentleness from the Lord. Now he had strength in the Lord. This is not the only way, the only time he talks this way. Ephesians chapter six, verse 10. Be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. First Timothy chapter one, verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength. Who's done it? Christ Jesus, our Lord. Second Timothy chapter two, verse one. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 17. The Lord stood by me and did what? He strengthened me. So the Bible here is talking about a sweet inward state of perpetual joy, peace, gentleness, and strength. That's why using those words, and I use the words sweet inward state because, now this is so key, So there's something else you might write down. According to God, contentment comes from inside of us, not outside of us. That's what Paul is really wanting to clarify here in response to their gift. Like he wants them to know he's grateful for their generosity. At the same time, he wants to be clear. Like I am not content, not content because of your gift, because I was content without your gift. He says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. 
Then he starts to get specific. He says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. He says, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. The point is, my contentment is not dependent on any one of those things. Like, did you see the repetition? In whatever situation I'm in, in any and every circumstance, and then he lists the entire spectrum, when I'm low, when I'm abounding, when I'm facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. This is so significant. Paul is saying, like, my joy, my peace, my gentleness, my strength are not dependent on any of those things. See it. So maybe write this down. Another way to put this. Contentment is completely free from dependence on circumstances. Contentment is completely free from dependence on circumstances. And this is so significant because this is so different than the way we think about contentment. At least naturally. Let's just be honest with each other. When things around us are going wonderful, we are content people. But when things are going miserable, we are miserable people. Because our contentment so often hinges on, revolves around our circumstances. But that's not actually contentment. Picture it this way. Picture a baby crying because they're hungry or they need you to change them. And you come and feed them or come and change them and they stop crying. Now they're content. Why? Because their circumstances changed. Picture a child complaining because they want something. And then you give in and give it to them. And they stop complaining. Now they're content. Why? Because their circumstances changed. And that's the way we think about contentment. If only our circumstances changed, we would be content. If things would get better, we would be content. But that's not contentment. Contentment is completely free from any dependence on circumstances. Paul's saying, when I'm brought low or abounding, I'm content. When I'm facing plenty or hunger, I'm content. When I'm facing abundance or need, I'm content. My contentment is completely free from dependence on circumstances. So maybe it would help to pause here and make this personal to our lives right now. So the Bible is talking here about a contentment that does not hinge on how long this pandemic lasts. If it lasts another month or another year or another five years, we can be content. The Bible's talking here about a contentment that is not dependent on our economy. If our economy rebounds, we will be content. If our economy tanks, we will be content. The Bible's talking here about a contentment that's not dependent on health. There is a way to live such that if you are healthy, you are content. 
And if you are sick with severe disease from COVID to cancer or anything in between, you are content. The Bible is talking here about a contentment regardless of circumstances this fall. Virtual school the whole year, in-person school, some combination, doesn't matter. You're content. If you have a job, you're content. If you don't have a job, you're content. If adoptions open back up, you're content. The Bible's talking about a contentment here regardless of circumstances in life. If you're single, you're content. If you're married, you're content. If you have kids, you're content. If you don't have kids, you're content. If you get into the school or you get that promotion, you are content. If you don't get either, you are content. If you're in prison or you're free, it doesn't matter, you're content. Do you see how revolutionary this is? Now, I want to be really clear. This is not to say that all these things I just mentioned are unimportant or that they don't affect our lives. That's part of the point. All of these things do affect our lives. So this is not about pretending like everything is perfect in life when it's not. So it's not about ignoring hurt and heartache and pain and disappointment and grief that are real. This is not about denying struggles and suffering in this world. Don't forget, Paul is languishing in prison as he's writing this. In another letter, he describes how he has experienced countless beatings, often been near death. Five times he says, I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Needless to say, the Bible is not talking here about a superficial Pollyanna approach to life that pretends like everything is easy when it's not. That's the beauty. That's the secret. There is a way to have perpetual joy, peace, gentleness, and strength in the middle of the pain, in the middle of the hurt, in the middle of the heartache, in the middle of the grief and the disappointment. There is a contentment to be found that is completely free from dependence on circumstances. Don't you want this? Don't you want an inward state of perpetual joy and gentleness and peace and strength in whatever situation you are in? Now, the danger here is that you might start to think, okay, so let me make sure I get this straight. Contentment is completely free from dependence on circumstances. And we saw contentment comes from inside of us, not outside of us. So you might start to think, all right, so I need to look inside me and just muster up this contentment on my own. This is why people resort to the self-help power of positive thinking. People start to think that the secret then is self-talk and self-esteem and self-confidence and self-worth and self-focus and self-sufficiency. But please hear, 
loud and clear. That is not contentment. That is conceit. Self-focus in any way is pride. And this is one of the things that is so fascinating about this passage. So you've got to see this because now we're getting to the heart of this secret. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, when Paul says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. So the word there for content, I'm going to write it out, kind of how it would be transliterated into English is all turkeys. Now you're like, why are you telling us this? Here's why. So it's basically a combination of two words in the original language of the New Testament in the Greek. So the first word is alta, which is from which we would get auto, as in autonomous. Like it's about the self. That's what that first word is. It's about self. And in the second part, our case is basically summarized as a word that means sufficiency. So the picture of this word is self-sufficiency. Like this is a word, autarkes, that Greek philosophers would have used to describe self-sufficiency, which makes you wonder, why is the Bible using that word right there? Because the Bible clearly teaches only God is ultimately self-sufficient, right? This is actually crystal clear in the very next chapter of the Bible. So right after uh, Philippians chapter 4 and Colossians chapter 1, the Bible tells us about Jesus as God is the self-sufficient creator who holds all things together. I want you to listen to this. So hang with me here because we're now we're starting to get to the heart of the secret. Listen to Colossians 1, 15 through 17. Talking about Jesus, the Bible says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Did you hear that? Jesus is the only self-sufficient being in the universe. So why then would Paul, the same guy who writes Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, about the self-sufficiency of Christ alone, how we're all dependent on Christ, why would he then say in chapter 4, verse 11, like, I have learned the secret to being content, to being self-sufficient. See this, don't miss this. If you only read verse 11, you're like, Paul, what in the world, bro? This goes against everything the Bible says. This goes against that which is true in the universe. Really, like the key to perpetual joy and peace and gentleness and strength is self-sufficiency? Then you keep reading. And Paul says, every circumstance I have learned the secret. And what's the secret? Verse 13. I can do all things by myself? No. I can do all things through myself. 
No, I can do all things through my strength, through my efforts to muster up joy and peace and gentleness. No, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And the word for through there is I'm not 100% sure why it's translated through here because it's most often in the Bible translated in. I can do all things in him. And who's the him? Oh, see it. The him is the self-sufficient creator of all, Christ, who lives in me. <laughs> the one who is before all things, in whom all things Hold together, he is dwelling in me. Which means that in any and every circumstance, in whatever situation, I have, guess what, living in me. I have the joy of Jesus dwelling in me. In any circumstance, whatever situation, I have the peace of Jesus living inside of me. I have the gentleness of Jesus living inside of me. In whatever situation, whatever circumstance, I have the strength of the creator of the universe inside of me. And no circumstance can take that away from me. Single or married, Kids or no kids, adoption or no adoption, school or no school, job or no job, health or sickness, pandemic or no pandemic. I have Christ in me, therefore I am content. Huh, see it? Contentment does not come from independence. Contentment comes from total dependence upon Christ. This is the secret. This is secret to an inward state of perpetual joy and peace and gentleness and strength in every moment regardless of your circumstances. Jesus is the secret. Christ in you. Which, which makes sense, right? Go back to the gospel. If the core of our sin is asserting independence from God, right? That's the core of sin is independence saying, I can do this apart from you. I don't need you. My ways are better than your ways. Just leave me alone. Like that's sin. That's what separates us from God forever until we realize that God is perpetual joy and God is perpetual peace and gentleness and strength. Those things are only found in God. So we come back to him, how? By his grace, through Jesus. Through what Jesus has done on the cross for you and for me. And through faith in him, we are reconciled to God, to experience in him, in God, perpetual joy and peace and gentleness and strength. Like unending joy, all surpassing peace, unexplainable gentleness, supernatural strength in a way that transcends, supersedes any and every circumstance in this world. Like, do you want that? Do you want contentment in your life? Then it starts with looking to Jesus as your life.
If you want contentment in your life, you must look to Jesus as your life. And this is where, like, I so want to jump into part two. Because, all right, so how do we do that? What does that mean? But we don't have time, so you're going to have to come back next week for that. We're just going to go to a whole other level. We're going to see how to get, how to live this secret. But even as we look forward to next week, like I was thinking as I was praying earlier this morning, like not one of us is guaranteed to be alive next week. Just reality. So I want to ask every single person listening today, like right now in this moment, do you know Jesus as your life? Not just you know some truths about Jesus. Not even just you believe some truths about Jesus. Demons believe truths about Jesus. Do you know Jesus as your life? Have you expressed dependence upon him for your life? Trust in him with your life. Have you turned from yourself, your sin, your ways, trusted in Jesus as Savior of your life, Lord of your life? And if not, I want to urge you to do that today because this is where contentment starts. Just let's bow our heads and just between you and God, I ask you right now, like, is Jesus your life? And if the answer to that question is not a resounding yes, then I invite you just to pray right now to God, your creator. Say, God, I know I have asserted my independence from you. I have turned from you to my own ways. But in this moment, I confess my dependence upon you. I need you for breath, and I need you to save me from my sins. I believe that Jesus died on a cross to pay the price for my sins, and today I trust in you, Jesus, as my Savior and my Lord. Oh, Jesus, we praise you for making reconciliation possible, for restoring relationship to you, O oh God, that we might experience a supernatural, circumstance-transcending peace, gentleness, and joy, and strength. So we pray, help us. Lord, we want to be able to say, like, honestly, not just using spiritual jargon, like we want to say authentically in the depth of our hearts, this pandemic lasts however long we are content. If this or that circumstance that we're facing right now in our lives doesn't change, we are content. We're not like children crying or complaining in this way or that way. If only this changes, then we will be content. We say, God, give us grace, give us faith to say, regardless of the circumstance, we trust you. Even as we do, we cry out to you 
express longings to you. We lay our hearts and our lives before you. We plead for your help in this way or that way. And as we do that, we say, Jesus, you are our strength. Jesus, you are our joy. Jesus, you are our peace. Jesus, you are our gentleness. You are everything we need. Even as we sang earlier, we love you. We lay our lives before you and we praise you that we can do all things through you, in you. We can face all things through you, in you. God, teach us this secret, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Try
now listening to Unity in Christ, the English hour in our broadcast program. You can download the app for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries by visiting Google, Play Store, or the iTunes App Store. You can now listen to this week's or past week's program on your Android or iPhone. Just search for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries to find it in the store. If you have any questions, please call us at 602-866-8999 or email us at heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. Following is a program, Transforming Grace. Hi, I'm Leslie Martin, author and women's ministry leader for Calvary Phoenix Church. I want to thank Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries for giving me this opportunity to share my book, Transforming Grace. I hope that you enjoy this segment of the book and gain a deeper knowledge and appreciation for God's transforming grace in your life. One summer, our church's high school group went backpacking on Snow Mountain in Northern California. Near the top of the mountain are picturesque alpine valleys and natural springs. One of the springs literally gushed from under a large flat boulder. We stuck our Sierra cups into the sparkling stream. There's nothing more refreshing than drinking ice-cold spring water from a tin cup. Your lips almost freeze on the edge of the cup, and it's so invigorating when you're parched and tired from hiking a steep mountain trail. We alternated between drinking the water and pouring it down our sweaty faces. It was so refreshing. That's the kind of life-giving water that Jesus gives us. He's not offering some stagnant pool overrun with slime. He gives a never-ceasing flow of life, something new and refreshing from Him. The water that He gives gives us life. It causes us to truly live. Spiritual dryness and thirst are problems that have been around a very long time. Several hundred years before Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well, her ancestors, the people of the kingdom of Judah, the Israelites or Jews, found themselves spiritually desolate and desperate as they were facing the armies of Babylon. At that time, the prophet Jeremiah lamented the terrible condition of his people as he declared God's message, For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Jeremiah 2, verse 13. Israel had two problems. One, they rejected God. And two, they tried to make life work on their own. These are contemporary problems. People all around us are spiritually dry. Even Christians are spiritually parched and thirsty. God has what we need for true life, but so many people are repeating Israel's mistakes by ignoring God. They're trying to catch a few little drops of something that will keep them spiritually alive. God says this is committing a double evil. This is the heart of sin, leaving the source of all life and trying to do something on your own. What will be the result if we try to store up a little strength and a little hope all on our own? We will be spiritually dry and thirsty because all we can build is a broken cistern that can't hold water. When we aren't connected to the source, 
we will not experience true life. As God looks on this world and sums up our most basic problems, there are basically two sins. One, people have left the true source, God. And two, people try to find their own way to cope or succeed in life, but it ends in death. When will people understand and turn to God? When will they realize that they are desperately thirsty for something they cannot draw from the wells of this world? Only when they finally come to the spiritual desperation that characterized the Samaritan woman will they realize the futility of their lives apart from God. The woman wasn't thirsty after she had one husband. She didn't even realize her need after two or three husbands. She had to have five husbands and then be living with someone else before she was at the point of acknowledging her desperate thirst for a Savior and His supply of living water. Maybe the Samaritan woman realized she was thirsty after the first husband, but it didn't send her to Jesus. It sent her to another husband, then another, and another. She wasn't satisfied with earthly love because she was actually seeking the love of her Father in heaven. She needed the love that only God can give. Like the Samaritan woman, God allows us to come to the point of realizing our spiritual dryness. What happens then? Isaiah said, The afflicted and needy are seeking water, but there is none. Isaiah 41:17. God patiently lets us sit by our little cistern until we get good and thirsty and we're ready. We must realize that all the broken cisterns, dry wells, and stagnant pools we've been trying have only left us dry and disappointed. That's the point at which God has a divine appointment with us, and he meets with us like he did with the Samaritan woman. Isaiah said, The afflicted and needy are seeking water, but there's none, and their tongue is parched with thirst. I, the Lord, will answer them myself as the God of Israel. I will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and springs in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land fountains of water. Isaiah 41, 17 and 18. Isn't this an awesome promise? Are you dry and thirsty? Maybe you're saved, but you've gone out and dug a little well, a little cistern, and you realize, hey, there's no water here. Possibly, you've been looking for the love that only Jesus has for you. You've been looking in relationships, in accumulating things, or in frantically filling your empty life with entertainment or work. There are a million little wells that people dig, but they don't satisfy. There is no water for a spiritually dry person apart from the true and living God. The only place you're going to find refreshment in life is at the source, the one who can bring streams out of deserts and fountains out of desolation. Jesus is the fountain of living water. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. John 6:35 Never thirst. If you're spiritually thirsty, it's because somehow you've disconnected from the supply. The supply is still there. You need to get connected again. Come to Jesus and let him flood your life and satisfy the thirst that you have in your heart. The psalmist said, "How precious is your loving kindness, O God! 
and the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They drink their fill of the abundance of your house, and you give them to drink of the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Psalm 36, 7 through 9. In Christ, we can drink our fill. God offers a boundless supply. What about when you get thirsty again? Have some more of the water Jesus gives because it never ends. Wells may go dry and cisterns may spring a leak. What this world offers will run out, but God never runs dry. There is always a new supply with the Lord. Are you facing something that is tremendously difficult? God will have what you need to face it. Every day, there are new mercies, a new supply of strength, hope, and help from God. The fountain is never turned off. In Arizona, where I live, they turn off the fountains to conserve water during the hot summer months. In contrast, God is extravagant. We live in a desert, the world, but he doesn't turn off his supply to conserve the living water. God's supply will not evaporate. If you have a huge need, God has a huge supply. He doesn't ration the living water. There is plenty, and it will always be available anytime you need it. It is flowing, running, quick and lively. It's abundant living water because God is the fountain of life. When the western United States experiences prolonged drought, people are encouraged to be more careful with their water usage. A few of the ways to conserve water include being very careful not to flush toilets unless absolutely necessary, resisting the temptation to take long, luxurious showers, or letting the faucet run while you wash your hands or brush your teeth. In contrast, our God doesn't ration living water. It's abundant, and it will never, never run dry. Jesus said, It's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Revelation 21.6 God's supply doesn't cost you anything. You're not going to get a monthly water bill. Where I live in the Phoenix desert, summertime water bills can be horrendous. Our family used to have fruit trees and an automatic sprinkler for our lawn. When summer hit and we received the water bills, we would think, is this really worth it? Eventually we moved, and our new home is xeriscaped with desert plants, cactus, and the typical ground cover in our Sonoran Desert rock. You are never going to get a bill from God for the water that he gives you because it's free and abundant. It will never be rationed, and it's available for eternity. The Revelator, John, wrote, And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Revelation twenty-two seventeen. These are some of the final words that God has given us in the Bible. Come, get a drink. It doesn't cost anything to you. If you're thirsty, I've got what you need and it will never run out. You will never be charged for it. It will never be rationed and it will be there forever and ever and ever and ever. God has the living water we so desperately need for spiritual life and satisfaction. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If any man is thirsty, 
John 7, verse 37. The background of this verse is interesting. The timing is during the Feast of Sukkot, which is also called the Feast of Tabernacles. The people built temporary shelters, or sukkahs, in and around Jerusalem as part of the celebration for this joyful feast. They camped in their sukkahs for an entire week. On the last day, the great day of the feast, there was a special ceremony at the temple. The high priest, followed by the other priests, Levites, and worshipers, carried a golden jar, or pitcher, as he walked down the southern steps of the Temple Mount to the farthest southern point of David's city, which ended at the Pool of Siloam. The high priest would fill the golden container with water from the pool, hike to the top of the Temple Mount, and pour the water on the altar. The water ran down the altar while the worshipers waved palm branches and sang the Psalms of Ascent. The Feast of Tabernacles takes place during early fall, when it's still hot and dry in Israel. Picture yourself as part of the crowd as you wave palm branches, hike down the mountain to the Pool of Siloam, and back up the mountain to the temple, all the while singing loudly. When the high priest pours the water on the altar, everyone falls silent during this special moment. As you hear the water running down the altar, Jesus stands up and calls out, Is anyone thirsty? What a question! Everyone is thirsty. Everyone's tongue is swollen in their mouths because they are so thirsty. Everyone has been shouting, singing, waving palm branches, and hiking up and down a mountain in the hot sun. Yes, we're thirsty. Jesus went on to say, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. John 7, verses 37 to 39. I hope you enjoyed this portion of God's Transforming Grace. We'll see you next time. God bless. Be thou still my strength
ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.